me if she was allowed to heckle me again. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. The uh, Buddha's teaching. Oh, sorry. Are you going? Are we on? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Launched right into it. The uh, the Buddha's teaching and, and the path of practice can really be seen in a number of ways. And uh, if we read in the suttas, we see that the Buddha taught uh, very differently according to the situation and who he was teaching. This was really seen as his one of his great gifts is that he knew what was appropriate and useful in any given instance. He had a great gift in that regard. And so at times it's seen that the path and the practice can be seen as a as an ever deepening understanding of the four noble truths, the truth of the cause of suffering in our lives and the way leading to the end of it. Sometimes as an elaboration on that in terms of the development of the Eightfold Noble Path and the trainings in, in sila, in ethical conduct, in um, concentration, mindfulness practice, and the development of wisdom. And the other night Michelle talked a little bit and I mentioned again since then Sometimes we see the path in terms of the understanding of what are called the three universal characteristics of all of all experience, this truth of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, and of the unreliability, the coreless, impersonal nature of phenomena. And as we plumb that to depth, we see more and more clearly uh, the real fundamental nature of things. Sometimes it's taught in terms of the progress of insight, stages of enlightenment, or the uprootings of uprooting of the defilements of the mind, the kilesas, these unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. And in some traditions, even in terms of just of the idea of realizing one's Buddha nature here and now in this moment. So a lot of different ways that we can look at how the practice unfolds. There's another way that uh, the path can be seen that's summed up quite succinctly in this verse from the Dhammapada, which is a collection of the Buddha's teaching in verse form. I'll read that. To cultivate the wholesome, to abandon the unwholesome, to purify the heart, this is the teaching of all Buddhas. And in the Yanguttara Nikaya, another collection, the Buddha elaborated on this a little bit. He said, cultivate the good, O monks. He was speaking to the monks. It goes for us too. Cultivate the good, O monks. One can cultivate what is good. If it were not possible to cultivate the good, I would not ask you to do so. But as it can be done, therefore I say, cultivate the good. This cultivation of the good would bring harm and suffering. I would not ask you to do it. 
But as the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the good. So really the entire path can be seen in this way. We're cultivating, we're practicing that which leads to happiness, peace, and freedom. And we're abandoning that which leads to suffering and unhappiness. This is a quote from a teacher I had in Burma once named Sayada Ujotika. He said, freedom really means knowing what is useful, what is beneficial and worthwhile, knowing what is wholesome and unwholesome, and choosing what is wholesome, good, and right, and doing it wholeheartedly. And in the teachings, one of the ways this is spoken of is in terms of what are called the ten paramis. In Sanskrit, it's paramita. And these are ten noble, beautiful qualities of mind and heart that uh, the Buddha is said to have perfected over countless, countless lifetimes, sometimes called the ten great perfections. And there's a collection of what are called jataka tales that are... Uh, They're kind of teaching fables in the Buddhist tradition. They're stories about the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva, taking birth in various realms and often as an animal and developing one of these qualities. I'll read you the list. It's uh, of the ten... So the ten paramis are dana, which is generosity, sila, which is ethical conduct, like the precepts that we keep here, nekama, is renunciation, panya, wisdom, virya is energy, courageous effort, energy, kanti, patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana, resolve, Metta, loving-kindness, and upeka, equanimity. We can think sometimes, if we think about this, it can seem kind of odd, or we might have trouble relating to the idea of, of cultivating or perfecting these qualities within ourselves. Sometimes we might feel as though we're born with a certain amount of patience or kindness, and that's just kind of the way it's going to be. Or we may see ourselves as compared to another. And I think, well, Michelle is very kind, and I'm only just so kind, and that's the way it's going to be. Although she's actually not that kind. <laughs> She's threatening revenge. <laughs> but really, our minds, our hearts are malleable. They're able to change. If they weren't, there'd be no point in coming to a meditation retreat or undertaking a spiritual path. You know, If we weren't able to change, we'd be wasting our time. So we really can cultivate these good qualities. 
And this is really a place in our lives where we can bring our attention, our intention, and our mindfulness to bear. And what we really are doing in this kind of practice is we're highlighting our own innate inner goodness and then allowing that to blossom and grow. The Buddha spoke about this in terms of intention and where we place our our mind, where we bring our thoughts and our energy, and that this is really of great importance. This is another quote from the Dhammapada, one of the most famous ones. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind-made. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, Suffering follows him like the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind-made. If with a pure mind a person acts or speaks, happiness follows her like her never-departing shadow. So tonight I want to talk about the first of these paramis, these ten great perfections beautiful qualities of heart, which is dana or generosity. And it's said that the Buddha taught dana, the practice of dana, and of sila, ethical conduct, before he really taught any kind of what's called bhavana or mind development, the meditation practices. And they're seen as a foundation upon which the rest of our practice rests. Why would this be the case? Why would practicing generosity be seen as so fundamental? Generosity, this practice of giving, is the expression in the world of non-greed. So in a way it functions as a kind of counter to the forces of greed and clinging in the mind. When we practice generosity, we strengthen this wholesome factor of non-clinging, of non-greed in the mind. And this becomes a force for liberation in our lives. The Buddha taught that it is this force of clinging, of grasping in the mind, that keeps us bound, that leads to suffering. And this is really the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. So acts of generosity can work as a kind of antidote or a counter to this Because when we practice giving, we're learning to let go and we're really practicing this quality of non-greed, non-clinging. The Buddha really praised the power of generosity in a number of places. I'll read a couple. This is from a collection called the Itivutaka. If beings knew as I know the benefit of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of miserliness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive their gift. And in the Anguttara Nikaya, he said, Even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into a village pool or pond, thinking, may whatever animals live here feed on this, that would be a source of great merit. 
I've had a lot of chances to uh, travel and live in Asia over the last almost 20 years now. Well, more than, I should say. The years have passed by, mostly in India and Thailand and Burma. And I've had the great uh, privilege and honor of spending time living as a an ordained monk in Burma on more than one occasion, actually. And since 19, uh, oh, for more almost 12 years now, I've been uh, helped to manage a retreat in Upper Burma, the one that uh, Michelle and Rebecca have been teaching at. Michelle's been teaching there since 1999. But I got there first, and I've been... Uh, <laughs> Managing, uh, helping to manage the retreat. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Friday night, Michelle's going to let me have it. <laughs> Sorry, that's the last one. <laughs> so we've been there together a lot over the years. And uh, in Buddhist countries, there's a, a way that the practice of giving permeates the culture that's very beautiful, and it's a way that we don't see so much here in the West, and it's very inspiring. And it's not to say that generosity doesn't exist here in the West. It definitely does. And of course, there are many generous people and many examples of abundant generosity and the expressions of it in the West here at home. But, for example, when there are natural disasters or other events, there's this huge outpouring of generosity. But it usually takes the form of some kind of philanthropy or of volunteerism, things like this. And it's held in a different way in Buddhist countries, I think. Certainly if you spend time there, it's, um, it's very touching and beautiful to see. And it's really seen as an integral part of the path. There's an understanding of the power of generosity in our lives and of the great merit that it brings us that we don't see so much here in the West. And I think there's an intentionality to the practice where it really is seen as a practice in a way that we, most of us uh, in the West don't, uh, don't have that kind of intentionality behind it in the same way. And it is a very beautiful thing that um, that one is usually very touched by. Uh, I'm going to speak a lot about Burma because that's where I've spent more time. And if you go visiting, you really can't go anywhere without things being offered, even very poor places. And if you admire something or comment on it, often it's going to be handed to you. You have to be careful. (laughs) People are so generous in that way. And there's the tradition of the teachings being offered for free in the monasteries and meditation centers. There's never a charge to practice. It's all on donation. So you can go and ordain and stay there kind of for the rest of your life. It's good to support these places, but there isn't a charge. And there's a tradition of meal dana, which we have brought to the West, and the meal board in the in the dining room, and people offering the meals. 
But it's very beautiful in the monasteries. I had a friend once who was uh, spending what's called the rains period. It's uh, four, three lunar months, 12-week period. That's in the monsoon time. It's the full moon of July to the full moon of October, usually. And he was going to be spending it at a monastery, and he had taken was going to take temporary ordination. You can do that in in Buddhist countries. You can ordain for a a period of retreat. And he wanted to, before he took robes and started his retreat, he wanted to offer a meal during the time he was going to be there. And he went to the office, and they told him that there were no empty slots. All of the meals had been offered for that time, and. This was a monastery where during the rains a lot of people come and there were there were seven or eight hundred people living at this place. That's a lot of people to feed. And he couldn't offer one of the meals. He, he gave his offering in a different way, but those meals were already all sponsored. And it was almost all from the local people in that area. When I was living as a monk for a, an extended, a longer period, for a year at one time, I would go out on alms round every day. That's right livelihood for a monk. And there's lots of rules about how one goes through the villages. Um, you have a, you, you don't own much as a, as a Buddhist monk. You have a set of robes and you have an alms bowl. And when you walk through the village, you can... You stand outside on the street. You don't go up to houses. You don't go within the yard. You can stand outside and wait. And if people notice you and they feel so moved, they can put something in your bowl. And there's a way that you hold them with metta. There's a lot of monks have 227 rules, and quite a few of them apply to going on alms round. And so I was going on daily uh, alms round, and I had one route that I, I did repeat, repeatedly every day over time, so I got to know some of the people. Not through conversation, but through daily interactions. And some of them were just kind of perfunctory, and they put a spoonful of rice in my bowl, and that's what you do when monks come by with their bowls. But some people made the offering in such a beautiful way, with such care and um, grace and a sense of um, really practicing uh, dana in that time. I remember there was one woman who, I mean, and this was a very poor village. People are living in very simple shacks um, made of bamboo. There's a well. They have to go and pump their water from a well. They don't have running water. And uh, she, one day I came and she didn't have any food to offer, but she offered me a flower and um, did it with such um, care. It was quite touching. There's a, um, one of the chants that's done in the monasteries is a recollection of the qualities of the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha, the Sangha being the community of practitioners, and particularly uh, when monks are chanting it, they're reflecting on the qualities of the ordained sangha. 
And the last um, line in that, in Pali, it's anuttaram punyaketam lokasa. And it means that one of the qualities of the monks is that they give occasion for great goodness or incomparable goodness to arise in the world. And I chanted this at various times quite a bit and wasn't sure just what that might mean. But when I was going on alms round, I, I got a real sense of one meaning of that was that it gave occasion for people to practice this great goodness of offering in this beautiful way. And people in Burma really see um, the beauty and power of this practice. There was one young woman on this same route who would come out and put food into our bowls every day. And she was very thin and did not look very well. And as the months went by, she was weaker and had to be supported uh, by her her family members to come out. But she still came every day. And Finally, at one point, um, they told us to come into the yard because she couldn't come that far. She needed to sit on a chair. Eventually, she couldn't stand up, which is, um, people don't, wouldn't do that in Burma. You'd always, they would always stand, and, and they're always barefoot when they offer. And, but she was too weak, and so we would go in and uh, accept the alms from her. And finally, one day she wasn't there, and I found out a day or two later that she had died. Uh, she had cancer and she was only, she was young. She was in her 20s. And, um, and yet she still, as long as she had any strength, she wanted to make this offering. Um, I don't need to say any more about that. The retreat that, uh, where Michelle and Rebecca teach that I've helped to manage is in the Sagaing Hills in Upper Burma. It's across the river and downstream from uh, Mandalay. And it's a beautiful place. It's the heart center of Buddhism in Burma in some ways. And it's, the hills are just covered with temples and pagodas and nunneries and monasteries. Some of them are very ancient. The Chaswa Monastery where uh, Sayada Ulakana and Michelle and Rebecca have been teaching. It's, he's the abbot there. Has been in constant use as a as a monastery, being rebuilt over time for uh, over 800 years now, I believe. And there's much older places in the hills, and it's steeped with this energy of practice over such a long period of time. It's just being there is brings a lot of uh, energy to be in that field. And there's the tradition of Mildana there as well, as in any of the meditation centers and monasteries. And so the yogis who come on retreat offer meals like people do here. And as well, some local families and supporters of uh, Sayadaws come. And they, uh, they often come the night before and they'll be up cooking almost all night and early morning. And sometimes it'll be a whole large family or even... Uh, Many people from a very small village will come and they offer the food and it's always, it's the best they can, they can offer. And sometimes it's very, very simple. But they take such joy in, in making the offering and they'll usually come and they'll sit and watch you eat. And um, 
it can be a little unnerving at first <laughs> because we're not used to having an audience when we eat most of the time. But they just love to see you actually eating what they've brought. And there's such joy and delight that it, it's, um, once you get used to it, it's really great. They're just so happy to be able to offer the food. So it's said that the practice of giving brings happiness in three times. Before one gives, when we're thinking about doing it, and we can be happy about the, our plan. During the actual act of giving, there's the happiness of making the offering. And then afterwards, we can reflect on our wholesome action. So it has this happiness in three times. I have so many stories. There's a, uh, a monk that we love to go see. I think Rebecca has mentioned him at least once this retreat. Uh, his name is, uh, I think it's Udamananda. We don't use his Pali name because often in, in Burma there's a custom of, of calling people after the place where they live. So Sayada Ulakana is called Chazwa Sayada. And this monk is called Myatong Sayada because he lives at Myatong Monastery. But we have nicknamed him the Happy Sayada. And he's very, he's over 90 now. And he's one of those kinds of people that it's worth flying all the way to Burma just to sit and sit with him for an hour. And one day uh, during the retreat, I was going to give a little talk on generosity at the end of the retreat for the yogis. And it was in the afternoon and Everyone was going to go see the happy side on. I said, well, I have to think about what I'm going to say. They said, no, no, you have to come. And I said, well, okay, I'll come, but I get to ask him a question. So uh, so I, we went to see him, and he's so good. <laughs> he's the best. So I said, Sayada, I need to talk to the yogis about Donna, and it's not so much a practice it's not a practice in, in our culture the way it is here in Burma. What should I say? Any advice? And he, there was a bowl of fruit near him. And he started picking up oranges and throwing them at me. <laughs> and for me to catch. And he said, Donna, this is Donna. You want to know about Donna? This is Donna. And then he said, everything here is Donna. If it wasn't for Donna, none of us would be here. None of us would be here. It was wilder than that. <laughs> but he, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, well, of course, you know, in the monastery there, everything was the result of people's generosity, all the buildings, everything else. But then I thought about how so much in our lives, how really everything is the result of the generosity and kindness of our friends and family and other people. You know, it's a very far-reaching thing. When we, if we really reflect, we can see how so much of what we have is the result, just our ability to be here at the retreat, for example, how the kindness and the generosity of others who might be covering for us or taking care of things or helped us to get here. There's so many ways that, that this operates in our lives that we don't necessarily reflect on that often. 
And sometimes the results of even a small act of generosity, of giving, can have, it can seem insignificant at the time, but it can have far-reaching consequences. Uh, Stephen Smith, who started the the retreat at Chaswa, where where we go in the wintertime, was there before the retreat started, a year or two before. He was doing a retreat in a cave in the near in the area there with another friend of ours who's, who's passed on now, who was a monk. And he was practicing, they were practicing in the cave, and one day a young woman uh, in her teens who was working as a mason, a laborer there, carrying bricks. A lot of times young women uh, work as... Mason, Mason's carrying cement and bricks for building projects. She uh, offered him a Coke, can of Coca-Cola, which was, um, based on the wages, it was probably several days' wages for her because the, you can buy cheaper beverages, but she offered a Coke because it's an American thing and he was an American. So it was a, a huge offering in terms of how much she was earning and um, a lot of really good things came as a result of that and Stephen being very moved and wanting to um, offer back to the people of Burma and to that area and so he and Saira got together and talked and Stephen said he had this urge to offer and to do things uh, to help in the area and so the Chaswa retreat started because they decided they would offer a place for foreigners to come and practice. And uh, they also came up with the idea of what has become uh, the Metadana project. And as a result of monies that have been raised through this foundation that was created, there's been a lot of support for a hospital that Saira built, a free hospital, free to monks and nuns, and cheap for the, the locals. And enough money was raised to build a new school in Wachat Village. I was there for the groundbreaking of it. And uh, the old school used to kind of get washed out every rainy season or many times because it was in a lower part of the village and it would get at least partially ruined and have to be rebuilt every year. So this was on higher ground and a more, more solid structure. And there are three nunneries that we support the nuns, nearly on 100 nuns that we make a donation to every winter. And we started an acupuncture training program at the hospital, which has really done extremely well. Now there's a team of people who practice acupuncture as a result of that training. And every year people come and, and the training has gone on now for more than 10 years. And all of that really had its, the initiation, the impulse to start all of that came from this small offering of a single can of Coca-Cola. So as we, if we take this on as a practice and as this practice deepens for us, then we really can see how this generosity and giving is an expression in the world of non-clinging, of non-greed. And our generosity really starts to flow from a sense of connection to all beings and from an understanding, a growing understanding that our happiness and the happiness of others is really 
one and the same thing. And there's so many ways that that this practice, that generosity can take shape, that many forms, you know, we can give materially when it's appropriate and possible for us in terms of money or things. Sometimes we give of our time and energy in service or in some caring capacity. Even just allowing someone to be the way they are is is an act of generosity. And we offer our ethical conduct in the world. And this is, in some ways, our commitment to non-harming is leads to one of the greatest gifts of all, and that's the gift of fearlessness. If people have nothing to fear from us, it's a wonderful, huge gift. By giving in this way, we become a beacon of light, a place of refuge for people in the world. And the Buddha said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all other gifts. Here's a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya. Giving food, one gives strength. Giving clothes, one gives beauty. Giving a vehicle, one gives ease. Giving a lamp, one gives sight. The one who gives a residence is the giver of all. But the one who teaches the Dhamma is the giver of the deathless. Sometimes when we think about the idea of giving, we can sometimes feel as though we'll be somehow diminished by it, as though we'll, we'll have less if we give something away. But as we make this a practice, we actually come to see that the opposite is truly true, and that by giving, we actually feel enriched, that we have more in a way. When we practice generosity, we begin to develop a sense of inner abundance, this feeling that we have enough and that we can share. And this feeling of inner abundance, of inner plenty, is not really based on any kind of objective criteria in terms of what we have materially, our our relative wealth. Certainly there are plenty of well-to-do people who have a kind of obvious external abundance, but they may find it very difficult to give. There can be a sense of inner poverty that makes it hard and makes, makes us cling to our possessions. And conversely, there are those who are very poor in material abundance and external wealth. And yet they can be incredibly generous and one sees this so much in Asian countries. They appear to have little or nothing to spare and yet they're incredibly generous. So how do we connect to a feeling of inner abundance, of inner wealth?
one way is to ask ourselves in any moment, what do I really need right now in order to be happy, in order to feel content and at ease? Our culture trains us, conditions us to feel, often trains us to feel that we can never have enough. And certainly our whole economy and the world of advertising is based on this strategy of convincing us that we're in a state of lack, almost to foster a feeling of discontent, that we're incomplete, but if we just get that new whatever, fill in the blank, then we'll be happy until the newer one comes along. You know, so we're bombarded with images in advertising. The sole purpose of them is to convince us that we we really need a certain standard of living, certain conditions, certain things, certain surroundings in order to be happy. But if we look in any moment, ask ourselves, what do we really need? What do I need right now? To be happy, we may see that we don't really need all those things. I had an experience that was very telling in this regard once when I was in my early years of meditation. I was in India, in Bodh Gaya, which is the place in India where the Buddha is said to have been enlightened. Very poor village in Bihar state, which is one of the poorest states in India. And I was living at the Thai monastery there, practicing on retreat. And the conditions were quite austere. I had a straw pallet in the basement of the temple. Um, Austere doesn't begin to describe it. (laughs) And, And... I was a little sick, as is often the case in India, especially when one is new to, to being there. Uh, so some, di- some digestive complaints, shall we say. And, uh, and yet I remember one day on my way to the toilet thinking to myself, if this is how my life is, If I will live like this for the rest of my life, I will be totally happy and content. I didn't, I only felt happy and content, and it certainly wasn't the result of my outer circumstances. But I remember having that reflection come into my mind, that if this is the way it's going to be from now on, I was just fine with it. Sometimes we have, you know, striking examples like that. We see that it's not our circumstances and conditions so much that lead to our sense of inner abundance and inner happiness.
And I've also noticed how the practice of generosity can bring this sense of of inner wealth and a great happiness to the mind. When we give, sometimes our sense of inner plenty really increases. This last winter, in January, February, the meditation retreat at uh, Chaswa Monastery was canceled because uh, circumstances in Burma were a bit dicey and Saida had to make a decision in the fall and he decided that, that he wouldn't hold the retreat. And I had my ticket. I was planning to go. And I could have canceled it, but I decided I would go anyway to see friends and see if people were doing okay and also to bring in the money for the Metadonna project uh, because I was that no one would be able to go. There was no one else who seemed in a position to go, and I felt uh, a real uh, strong determination to keep the projects, the ongoing projects, supported in, in the way that we could by bringing these funds in. And I'm so, I was so happy that I went, and people were so glad that I came, and uh, there's so much happiness in my heart to be able to give away the money for the to the nuns, especially we we go to the nunnery uh, when we give the money away. We actually go there, uh, and the nuns all gather, and we we give the money individually to each of them, and they chant uh, protection chants, blessing chants for us, and often host us for a meal. I got to have a mohinga. In the morning, usually you have to eat something at all three of them. It can make one a bit full, <laughs> but it's so beautiful, such a wonderful thing. And to go to the school, we go to the school every year, and I offered uniforms, money for the uniforms, and the, we give uniforms and pay the tuition and the supplies for all the kids so they can all go. Some of them, their parents can't afford that stuff, and they, they're not offered. They have to buy their own. And the kids are so great. We bring the yogis there every year, and the kids just go wild. There's 600 of them or so, and they're just, they're so sweet. And they all chant for us, and it's beautiful. And then I gave away all of whatever extra money I had in various places. I had to, actually had to borrow some money from a friend to get out of there <laughs> and not arrive in Bangkok completely penniless. And there was such happiness in my heart and such a feeling of abundance and inner, inner plenty that came as a result of this giving. The practice of generosity and the sense of inner abundance leads to another really beautiful quality of heart, and that's uh, gratitude, feeling of gratitude. I think the two are go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same thing, really. We can't give without touching this quality of gratitude. 
And we all really do have a lot to be grateful for, but sometimes we don't take the time to actually count our blessings so much. Sometimes it's easier to see all that we seem to not have, all that we're lacking. But we can really turn our attention to all that we have to be grateful for, to appreciate it. I remember someone telling me, I don't know who this was, someone on retreat, maybe a teacher telling me that they had a practice they did sometimes where once a day they would reflect on five things that they had to be grateful for. You know, it can be the cool breeze today. I sure was grateful for that. It could be simple things. We have food and shelter and friends or the opportunity to come to a meditation retreat. It's a great blessing in our lives, a place to really find this feeling, this quality of gratitude, that we have the opportunity to hear the Dhamma, to have these teachings. So it's really a wonderful practice to turn our attention towards all that is good in our lives, to really delight in this, bring brightness and happiness to the mind. I tried to find a quote and I couldn't, but the Buddha once somewhere said something like, there are two kinds of rare and remarkable beings in the world beings who are generous, and beings who feel gratitude. So I think I'll end with this, a final quote from the Buddha. I forgot to write down where this comes from, one of the collections. One who shares his wealth with some, but does not gladly give to others, is only like a local rain shower in such a way the wise describe him. But one who rains down bountiful gifts, gladly giving here and there, out of compassion for all beings, and who always says, give, give. This type of person is like a giant cloud filled with rain, thundering and pouring down refreshing water everywhere, drenching the highlands and lowlands too generous without distinctions. I guess I'll say one or two more words. Thought I'd end there. But it really is an opportunity to take 
the song as a, as a real intentional practice, then it really can serve as a force for liberation and a real foundation for the rest of our practice to unfold in a very beautiful way. So I encourage you to have a look at that. And I'll read the last paragraph so we have a go out on a poetic note. Last two. One who rains down bountiful gifts, gladly giving here and there out of compassion for all beings, and who always says, give, give. This type of person is like a giant cloud filled with rain, thundering and pouring down refreshing water everywhere, drenching the highlands and lowlands too, generous without distinctions. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Let the words drift away. Thank you for your kind attention. Please come back for chanting if you're so moved at nine o'clock. <laughs>